For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brooke Prentice and I'm an Aboriginal Christian leader, but the role I play here as Peace Talks is as Peace Talks Director. Um, so it's wonderful uh, for you all to join us this evening as uh, we've come to hear from Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll. And so let me start with um, an acknowledgement of country. Together tonight we gather and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet and on which we listen and on which uh, we yarn together, the land of the Gadigal peoples. They have been and continue to be stewards on behalf of our almighty creator. And these clapsticks made with wood from my country, Waka Waka country, uh, remind us that beneath this carpet and concrete and bitumen, this land holds many stories. All the ceremonies and celebrations it's seen and heard and been a part of since time immemorial. And tonight on these lands, we have another ceremony and uh, another story told on these lands of the Gadigal peoples. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and future. That paying our respects is a deep thank you for all that they have done to care for these lands and waters, but for all they have done in the fight for equality and freedom so that uh, as a younger Aboriginal person, I can stand here today um, with freedom, but still with that fight for justice for Aboriginal peoples across these lands now called Australia. As we stand here acknowledging country on the eve of uh, the climate strike, global climate strike happening tomorrow, we remember. We remember these lands and waters uh, as they once were pre-colonisation, the impact of colonisation and the impact of all peoples in these worlds that that has on the lands, waters, animals, birds, fish, trees, plants and all peoples. And so may this acknowledgement of country be a deep remembering for each of us. Well, again, welcome. We do have little uh, flyers with our next Peace Talks that are coming up. So the next one is Saturday the 2nd of November and then the last one for the year is Saturday the 30th of November. So um, please make sure you like Peace Talks on Facebook or fill in the form to join our email list. Um, so tonight uh, we'll hear from Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll. We'll then have our Q&A and then we'll um, join out in the courtyard again uh, for drinks and supper uh, and to continue the conversation. Uh, but it is a great privilege to welcome Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll, otherwise known as Seph, uh, who I consider a very dear friend of mine when we met in 2016 um, in South Africa. Uh, and those of you that are familiar with Paddington Anglican, uh, we're actually with um, Reverend Dr. Uh, Jeff Broughton uh, when he and I co-presented a paper at the Global Network of Public Theology and uh, Seth was also presenting a paper there. And so that's when we first met. And so doing my Aboriginal thing of introducing through relationship uh, but also Seth and I uh, have just returned from Canberra yesterday where we were both part of a delegation that Micro Australia pulled together of 40 Christian women leaders uh, across Australia and we were advocating for Pacific women uh, and children. Uh, and so it was a great privilege to walk side by side um, with Seth uh, as a uh, female Christian leader in this nation. 
Uh, Seth has so much to contribute to this nation and to the world, uh, and she is truly inspiring to me, one of my favourite theologians. Uh, and Seth uh, is Fiji-born Rituman uh, and spent her formative years growing up uh, Maybe I should have actually got you to read this, Seth, uh, or I should have spent more time practicing the pronunciation. Latoka? Uh, the western side of Vit Vitilevu in Fiji. Um, and these formative experiences continue to inform Seth's uh, theological reflections on interfaith and cross cultural relationships and gender and culture from a diasporic perspective of a migrant who calls Australia one of her homes. Seth graduated with a PhD in theology at Charles Sturt University in 2015. She is a research fellow of the Public and Contextual Theology Research Centre, otherwise known as PACT, of Charles Sturt University. She is a visiting lecturer with the School of Theology uh, at the United uh, Theological College, Charles Sturt University in Theology. Seth is a CTI fellow and was a resident member of the 2017 and 2018 Inquiry into Religion and Migration at the Centre of Theological Inquiry in Princeton. And Seth just completed her time with Uniting World, where she worked as a theological researcher on climate and gender and facilitating church relationships in Australia and the Pacific. Seth is a great believer in the powerful role theology can play in bringing about transformative change. Uh, and she will soon begin a new role with the World Council of Churches in Geneva in January 2020. So I'm very uh, glad that Seth is here with us tonight uh, before she embarks on an even bigger journey. Um, so please welcome Reverend Dr. Seth Rosser Carroll. Good evening, everyone. Um, and um, thank you for being here, and uh, thank you, Brooke, for um, the warm welcome um, and the friendship um, and the great fun that we've always had together, and here's to more to come in the future. Um, and I also want to thank you, Brooke, for the invitation to be here and to share something uh, about the Pacific, uh, especially in the area of climate change, uh, and the way that the Pacific is responding uh, to this issue. Um, and uh, the perspective will be um, mainly from a theological perspective. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Pacific, you will know that um, the church is a integral pillar, uh, and thereby, if we are to work, work towards change, we need to be engaging churches, faith, and theology. So um, the talk tonight is around uh, those um, things. But first, um, and some of you may be aware of this video, and if you are, sorry, I'm gonna play it again. But um, this was a video that was uh, made two years ago, and it's uh, from the island of Tuvalu, which is one of the five low-lying atolls that's um, being submerged due to rising sea levels. And this is their story in their voice, and I use it to actually frame uh, the talk and to frame the kind of challenges that the Pacific is having in the current time. If this small space is submerged underwater, uh, that is the end, and that is the literal death of a people, of us as a people. This is the space that we belong to, 
and our identity as a people is tied down to this this very space on the planet it is a matter of life and death for our people we need to to fight the issue to keep us alive and have assurance of our life continuity 87 to 80 percent of the total population who are members of our church we believe that whatever impacts the daily lives of our people should be a concern of the church and because of those, those challenges the, the church needs to get involved we really do worry because uh, our place i think is only like uh, not even more than 100 meters wide until the other side of the country, of the island, where you can also see the, the seas. Here in Tuvalu, fish is one of our stable food that we totally rely on for our daily survival. However, due to the increase of heat temperature in the water, fish are forced to move further out. Basically, it becomes a very difficult exercise for our fishermen to do. Uh, I'm a gardener and I make a garden for my family and I find it very difficult because of the salt in the soil. It's very hard for me to cultivate it and it's been two years I've been trying to let them uh, grow but very hard to feed my family with the, the food that I grow from the garden. We heavily rely on rainwater, collecting of harvesting of rainwater for daily survival. If we don't have any water for, for more than a week, we consider that a drought. Soon enough, we will be in a state where uh, we don't have enough to, to feed our people. And that leads to the creation of poverty. You know, when we talk about climate change to our people and sea level rise, they say, oh, God promised that there won't be any more such things happening to the world. Um, in reference to the, um, to the flood narrative in the Bible. So we have to reread that narrative um, to them, for them to see that climate change is not, is not caused by God, but it is caused by Noah, by us, by humans. We need to be God's instrument. We need to play our part. There seems to be no hope for us to save the country. But as I always say, we remain optimistic because that is our mission. <laughs> Tuvalu is our home. What we should do is that we should work together to stop the impact of climate change, to find a solution for this impact also. I want people to help us, for us to have a better life. What we do is not only to save this country. I think it's about time that we Christians should stand together. I would like to keep on fighting until I stand on seawater to make sure that my country and my people doesn't go down for nothing.
And out of interest, uh, Tuvalu is where they had, about a month ago, the Pacific Island Forum, and that's where our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was, uh, and where the Tuvalu Declaration got watered down to uh, basically nothing. Uh, and I guess for me, it's kind of, I've been to Tuvalu and I've always had this belief that when you go to Tuvalu, you cannot deny the impact of climate change because it's real, it's there. And if you saw on that video, it is, the land is so narrow uh, because the sea is encroaching um, with sea level um, intrusion. So, um, yeah, so it kind of um, baffles me that you could go to an island and have an encounter and still come out of it in some ways seemingly untransformed, but that's my opinion. Anyway, in this presentation, uh, I just wanna talk about why faith is important in the Pacific, uh, also to look at the theological and spiritual implications of that, and in terms of theology, is it friend or foe? Uh, because we know the Pacific, or the Pacific is known as a spiritual kind of uh, region. Uh, but yet, when it comes to a crisis like climate change, um, theology does stand in the way of how people engage with the reality of climate change. Uh, so is it friend or foe? And the other is to give an example of um, work or of disaster resilience in the Pacific. Uh, one of the things that the Pacific does not want to be known for or uh, pitied for is that they are victims of climate change. So resilience is a big thing for them. So they will say, um, yes, you know, we, we are experiencing some hard times, but what we ask uh, of countries in the West and the more wealthier countries and also the countries that are polluting um, the, the earth and creation is to basically do the right thing so that we can buy time to save our homes so that we can have that little bit extra um, to actually live in this place where our um, connection to land, to ocean, is so important and so critical. So when we, um, I'm a migrant by choice to Australia, so when I first embarked on this work, I used to say, well, hey, you know, um, just pack your home when you're back and just kind of move. Also, when we think about the Christian narratives of pilgrimage, it's, you know, about moving, it's, it's, it's about um, having roots, but not actually being totally, um, not connected, but totally uh, sort of uh, stuck on land in that way. But that, for me, going to Tuvalu and places like Kiribati has challenged the way I think about Christian pilgrimage and our connection to land in that way, and also um, that migration is not simply about packing your home on your back. I made a choice. For the people of Tuvalu and Kiribati, it will not be a choice for them. Um, okay, so overview of the Pacific. How many of you have been to a country in the Pacific? Oh, great, great. So may I ask where? Tonga. Tonga, fabulous. Fiji, right. Whereabouts in Fiji? Okay, all right. Uh, Solomons, I know, yeah. So you may have um, 
some familiarity or familiarity with the Pacific. But basically, the overview is that it is not a homogenous whole. I've had someone say to me once, well, you're all the same, aren't you? Like, really? I'm not the same as the Tongan. Yeah, there might be similarities, but we're not the same. We're kind of, we have our similarities and our differences. Um, small, isolated island states. Uh, we have a long colonial and Christian missionary history um, and strong, well, long connections with Australia, New Zealand and the US and these countries continue to be strongly influential. Um, aid monies, and at the moment there's the growing Chinese presence uh, and that's actually uh, making many people uncomfortable in the Pacific and beyond and also in Australia. Uh, we're affected by rapid globalization and uh, the movement of people overseas. There's also a very strong reliance on remittances. That's money going back to the islands. But then I heard from Mayi Natalia, who was on that video, that the reverse is happening with Tuvalu. Tuvalu is actually sending more money overseas than money coming in. Figure that one. But anyway, um, it's developing countries, so poverty is is actually a really big issue. Um, and public life and church life is mainly uh, dominated by patriarchal leadership. So therefore, uh, this week was about putting women and children um, front and center of the government's specific step up. Um, and significantly impacted by climate change. And even though um, Tuvalu and Kiribati and the low-lying um, atolls are definitely at risk and they're the ones that you see, uh, climate <coughs> impact is uh, being felt throughout the Pacific. So uh, in uh, Fiji, for example, there are about 40, country, or 40 villages that are earmarked to be relocated in the next 10 or so years. Uh, the Solomon Islands uh, research has shown that about five islands have been swallowed up by the sea, and we are all familiar with the cataract uh, islands and the relocation to Bougainville. So it's happening all over the Pacific region, not just in Tuvalu or Kiribati or the low-lying um, atolls. And about 90 to 97% of people in the Pacific are Christian. So uh, therefore, faith theology becomes very critical when we're dealing with climate change. And why? Um, well, in terms of our legacy, this is their four big legacies that we have inherited. Uh, Christian mission is, has been very big in the Pacific, um, but that's not just in the Pacific, that's in, uh, across the world, in Australia as well. Um, and with Christian missions came the uh, legacy of how we interpret the Bible and how we view the Bible. So uh, the Bible is sacred, it is taboo, so it is a challenge or it's very difficult for people to be able to critique the Bible objectively because there's a sense that if you do that then you know something terrible could happen to you. And this comes into play in terms of how uh, well, in terms of attitudes to women and children and also to climate change impact because the, um, the understanding is, as we heard from Tafui in that um, uh, short clip, is that it's 
caused by God, and we'll talk about that more later on. The other is with the interpretation of the Bible or a particular interpretation or misinterpretation of particular passages comes a theology uh, or theologies that are sometimes helpful but most times unhelpful. And so part of the work at the moment in the Pacific is about deconstructing and reconstructing theologies that are life-affirming, that enable people or empower people to engage with the issues, whether it be domestic violence or violence in general or climate change or uh, things like natural disasters. And finally, the church. The church is, uh, again, a critical pillar in the Pacific. Uh, And so um, it needs to be engaged with because for many people in the Pacific in village or communal settings, the pulpit becomes the place where things are learnt um, and where unhelpful theologies can be perpetuated. Um, And I know that there's been critique against the church in terms of, and I guess it's not just in the Pacific, it's also here because our domestic violence rates aren't that great either. It's not just in the Pacific. But they will say things like um, violence against women or violence in general is not something that's preached from the pulpit. Um, So, you know, the pulpit can be uh, a way of transmitting good information, good theology, and good faith. That's the hope. So, um, in terms of the Pacific context and faith, now Patrick Nunn uh, from the University of Queensland in Brisbane wrote an article called Sidelining God in the Pacific. And in this article, he was arguing that um, in relation to climate change projects and NGOs, that you can't afford to sideline God in the Pacific. And the reason why many projects, NGO projects were failing uh, was because they weren't engaging faith and they weren't engaging the church community. So he was making the point that if you want change, then you must engage the church or take the church seriously as a uh, critical stakeholder and actor in that space. Um, So it's kind of, it's been a journey because um, many of the projects in the Pacific, um, well, particularly if they relate to church, are kind of not sponsored um, or funded by DFAT because they want to remain sort of neutral. Um, So they're kind of getting the idea that it's got to be context specific. The other, the second point is that there are the three pillars, the Vanua, the Lotu, the Matanitu, and this is the Fijian term for that, um, and across the Pacific. These are the, the land, the church, and uh, the government um, are actually the three powerful pillars in, um, in each different Pacific country. Um, and, to, um, and you need to engage all three. When I speak of the Vanua, uh, the Vanua is the Fijian word for land, but I'm not, uh, when I use the word Vanua or land, that encompasses everything. The term land is holistic, so it doesn't just mean the land, the soil itself, it also means creation, the ocean, which is the Moana, um, the land and the people. So um, Pacific 
worldview is holistic and well traditionally was integrated where people and creation were one. They weren't seen as, as either or. Um, that came about later. And um, finally it is to say what kind of Christian legacy in the Pacific um, that we are dealing with. What's, what's going on here in terms, and tonight I'm talking specifically in terms of um, climate change. So um, here are some challenges in theological thinking and practice which actually stands in the way of people engaging um, realistically with what's going on. And that is that uh, this understanding that God will save us and because God will save us, we just need to faithfully wait. Um, it can go as far as saying that, um, that Noah's Ark um, will return. Um, so not only, will, not only has God promised never to flood the earth again, but that, you know, um, if we wait, the ark will return. Um, so we just wait. Um, so it's a passive kind of waiting. The other is that God is punishing us because of our sin, and um, churches are often full after a natural <coughs> disaster, and ministers will often comment on this. And the reason being that people are in churches on the Sunday following the disaster repenting um, of their sin or unknown sin because uh, there's that belief that, you know, uh, a natural disaster has happened because they've done something wrong somewhere, uh, even if they're not aware of it. So these are kind of, you know, powerful kind of... Um, sort of beliefs that actually stand in the way of getting people to move and to engage. Um, home and heaven is spiritualized as a paradisical afterlife. So, and this relates to the first one that, so, you know, that we are just passive recipients in the here and now. Um, so we just kind of go along and things will work out. Well, we hope that they will work out. Um, the other is that there's that separation between human beings and creation. And as I said earlier, traditionally, um, our understanding was holistic. And I, um, this has to be one of the most detrimental legacies of Christian theology um, to the Pacific. Because what it did was actually separate human beings from creation. Um, and created another worldview which um, kind of marginalized or sidelined uh, Pacific indigenous understanding. Um, it is my thesis that um, the very, that is our indigenous knowledges that the Pacific needs to navigate and negotiate the current time. But it's the very thing that Christian missions has taught us to treat with suspicion. So the challenge becomes, how do we encourage people um, to actually re-engage with their ancient wisdoms? Because they were life-giving and life-affirming. Maina Talia made an offhand comment uh, to me one time by saying, in Tuvalu, it's the uh, refrigeration that's, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's killing us. And, you know, I laughed because I thought it was funny. And he said, well, no, he said, you know, 
Because of the, you know, of refrigeration, the modern fridges, we have now lost the art of preserving our fish or our food. And so when we go to fish, we fish for more than we need rather than what we need for the time. And we've just lost the art of actually preserving our food because we've got the fridge. And so what happens? We overfish and then we chuck it out because we don't eat it all. So, uh, you know, I thought, you know, he's got a point um, that, yeah, some of these modern kind of conveniences has meant that uh, our Pacific people lose further touch um, with indigenous wisdoms and knowledge. Um, salvation and redemption has been personalised and individualised, and so the corporate interrelated communal nature has been lost. And again, we're seeing the breakdown of community uh, into individualism, which is not very helpful. And human beings, as we know, and we all suffer from this one uh, through the Genesis story, have dominion on creation. Um, and then we also have a history of theodicy, which separates moral and natural evil. And in the current time uh, of climate change, we can't seem to, or we don't want to, connect the dots between natural and moral evil. And, and what that means is that, you know, it's moral evil that's actually causing or exacerbating things like natural disasters. Um, so it's very convenient. I mean, I guess that's why some Christians can argue that no, it's all natural disasters, so it's God-caused. Um, and then don't make the connection that, hmm, no, not really, not anymore. Um, so the task in the Pacific is, is manifold. Um, there's internal work to do within the Pacific, and this is beginning to happen, to do with theology and the recovery of indigenous epistemologies. Um, there's also work around theodicy, custodianship, and climate justice, um, because the Pacific is very big, particularly countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati, on uh, calling to account uh, polluting countries, and you know, Australia is one of them. Um, Climate-induced migration or displacement is really a big issue in the Pacific now um, because it's already happening. Uh, but it's something that we don't often talk about. Uh, but it's it's actually there. Um, and with that, the loss of home, culture, and identity. And so the question becomes for people of Tuvalu and Kiribati, what is then hope in this context? Um, and questions around if they were to move to another place, what happens to their sovereignty? Um, Fiji, the Prime Minister Baini Marama, uh, actually issued an invitation to um, Tuvalu and Kiribati saying that, you know, Fiji is is welcoming you should you need a home. But the Pacific in general does not have the resources to actually cope with massive migration. Um, president, the former president, Anote Tong from Kiribati, uh, purchased land in Fiji as, as part of his migration with dignity policy. Uh, and that was for him something that he wanted to do because he wanted to um, ensure that his people didn't become refugees in the sense of them losing choice um, and losing their sense of dignity. 
Um, so, you know, again, complex issues um, happening in the Pacific. And externally, uh, again, advocacy and climate justice in Australia and um, with Uniting World or the Uniting Church, our partners have always asked us to advocate and to speak up in the public space when we can uh, or wherever we can because they know that that's uh, something that the church can do as part of its prophetic nature and uh, they call on us to actually be faithful in that way. Um, right, so in terms of disaster resilience, and this is where I just want to hone in on some, something specific in terms of how resilience is being um, cultivated, but this is to do with disaster preparedness um, because natural disasters are frequent in the Pacific and because of climate change impact, um, not only is it more frequent, it's more ferocious. So uh, although Pacific people have always been resilient, I mean, I've, you know, sort of uh, lived through many a cyclone, um, having them frequently or too frequently and having them a scale five plus um, means that they can't be as resilient as they used to because they kind of don't have time to recover. So. Um, yeah, so this kind of becomes a challenge for them. So what we were um, looking at in, in terms of this particular project was to um, enable communities or to empower communities to actually do something simple as prepare for a cyclone. Um, as I had said earlier, uh, because of the beliefs that people have about God and about passive waiting, Something that we take for granted that is simple, like preparing for a, a cyclone or a natural disaster, uh, actually was a really big challenge in the Pacific because it kind of just didn't happen. Um, so the theology or the work around this was to actually help people kind of um, see being prepared as part of their discipleship. Um, so again, it's kind of using theology in a way that empowers rather than hinders action. So baseline surveys, and these were for Melanesian countries in particular, um, they were done in four countries, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Solomons and Vanuatu. And then there was a workshop, and this is about doing theology in community. Um, again, like in the West, theology can become a very individualized or individual kind of um, sort of work, you know, you kind of sit in your ivory tower and you write theology. Woohoo! Fabulous. Um, I guess it has its place, but anyway. Um, this was about doing theology together with people in the Pacific. Um, so we had a workshop in Suva where we had a, a mixture of theologians and practitioners and again, the, um, you know, Good to have a conversation between the two because again, you can do theology and become so abstract that your theology just doesn't mean anything when it hits the ground or it doesn't even hit the ground. Um, so the practitioners were there to actually sort of say, well, you know, check, 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 make sure you kind of make these connections, um, otherwise it's of no use to anybody. Um, and that happened, there were about 10, 12 of us um, in August 2018. And it was, the, the reason of coming together was about developing a context-specific theology of disaster resilience. 
And the premise that everyone came up with, I mean, this was amazing, was this, that preparedness is an element of discipleship for a resilient Pacific Earth community. And that statement came out of uh, the surveys. So again, this is a, you know, a way of doing theology that's not only communal, but actually touching base and connecting to um, the source of the community so that we didn't become abstract and irrelevant, because um, that can sometimes happen with theologies. Um, all right, so the, the objective of this was to strengthen, empower, and enable individuals and communities to build and maintain communities of sustainability and resilience in the face of disasters. So we wanted to move or enable people to move from just being passive uh, recipients, but to be active, actively engaged uh, with being prepared during the um, disaster um, cycle. Uh, and it was looking at developing a Christian concept of preparedness. And the challenge here was to keep it simple and accessible for a multi-layered audience. Um, for many people in our Pacific communities, not only is the language of theology, or not only can it be foreign to them, uh, it can also be very abstract and just you know, way, way up there that they actually don't know what you're talking about, um, which really defeats the point of why you actually do theological reflection. Um, so the, the <coughs> challenge was to keep it simple without dumbing down so that we didn't return to, oh, look, um, God will look after you and you just, just be faithful and everything will happen. So how this um, theology kind of developed was first to address the issues and the challenges of sin, suffering, and disasters, and the Bible, and God's place in sin and suffering, um, and to actually um, help people move from thinking that natural disasters uh, is basically God punishing them for sin. I mean, that is partly an answer, but it's not the whole answer. And if we were to look at it, you know, yeah, it is partly sin because we as human beings have failed to look after the earth responsibly. So that is sin. But the thing is, how do we talk about sin in a language that people understand uh, rather than something that's just individualised? And the other was to look at faithful response and faithful practice so that the response is to say as part of our discipleship and as part of following Jesus, this is what we believe. And the faithful practice is to actually say, because we believe, we do. Because um, what, uh, what the, the gap is in the Pacific is that we believe, but we don't do. So um, this whole theology or, or framework for theology was to, again, enable people to move from just believing to actually doing. And so uh, preparedness becomes an action rather than just spiritual formation, um, which is great. But, but this was some of the um, uh, outcomes and comments that came from the survey that was being done. And this one in particular got me because I just thought, oh my gosh, it comes down to something as simple as this where one man said, the neighbours went around telling people to put cyclone shutters on, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. We just trust in God, 
and he will protect us. Um, they prayed, then they weren't affected. Um, it's a bit scary. Because what happens if they were affected? I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah. So um, yeah. So it's it was it came down to something as simple as that. Put your shutters up. No, because it shows that I don't trust God. Um, and you know, like we think, oh, but that's just common sense. But that's what kind of bad theology can do for you. Um, and. Um, he was one of the challenges that sometimes when people are deeply believing in predestination and you are trying to encourage them, encourage them to evacuate, it's like telling them, telling someone that the sky is green because um, it just won't go because God will save me. Uh, but then there's also opportunities as well. So again, that's why um, theology became so important. And then this is the big one, divine retribution. God is punishing us. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then I guess the other side of that was to say, for some of us, it's our turning point that, you know, disasters can be a way of teaching us something. And uh, the other was also the, which I hadn't realised, but that people were blaming certain groups uh, in communities for the disasters. So, uh, for example, you know, this happened because it's the LGBTIQ community that caused this. Or the elders did something wrong, so, you know, God's punishing us. So, uh, you know, these are kind of very deep-seated beliefs that actually are actually quite detrimental um, in, in many ways. And again, we'll see how that happens. But basically, um, the faithful response was looking at preparedness as an element of discipleship, so linking being prepared and discipleship. That was point one. I won't go into it because it's late. Um, the other is preparedness as a mark of resilience. And this is um, not only about uh, connection to the resurrection and hope, but also connection back into um, Pacific epistemologies, that resilience comes from the wisdom of our cultures. Um, and this is a big thing for the Pacific. In many ways, it's about giving Pacific people the permission to re-engage with their Pacific wisdoms. Um, when we uh, ran the first workshop, and it was in Vanuatu, and um, the next day we had a going around, you know, asking people how they felt the day was, and the day before, I had said that scripture, the Bible, is not the only source of theology or faith. That they are, if you're looking at the Wesleyan um, quadrilateral, there are four. Theology, reason, tradition, experience. And I said that experience is context, it's your culture. That those, that, that's, that's a source, a real source of theology. So the next day they go around and um, someone said, well, yesterday I was really concerned because I heard that the Bible is not the only source of theology. And I thought, oops, we could, you know, I don't know where this is leading. And then he said, but then I heard that experience is a source of theology and that culture is a gift. And I realised, wow, you know, that, that's something that we can draw on. 
So in a sense, it was giving people permission to actually re-engage with what is already there. Um, so yeah, so that is a big thing. And the other is that preparedness is a sign of faith and a visible mark of hope. Um, we look at this and we might say, there's nothing new in there. Really, there isn't anything new. But it is new for the people in the Pacific because it's um, giving them a new framework and a new way of thinking about God, suffering and disasters. Uh, and then they go, oh, bingo. Yeah, you know, I can dare to think differently. So in terms of our faithful practice, there are five. And again, this is about connecting back to our kind of integrated holistic understanding um, of creation and human beings and that relationship. And the first one is Earth Community, uh, which is uh, the, um, the Earth Bible uh, group uses this a lot. But what we've done with this is to have a principle and have a practice so that they can link them. Um, and uh, uh, as a practice, it is about mutual custodianship and service because we are all equal and valid members, valued members of the Earth community. The second one, big, big, big inclusion. Um, and this is to affirm the dignity of all people and the integrity of creation for all are created equal and worthy of respect. Why is this so important in the Pacific? Because in terms of evacuation and what the research was showing is that the most vulnerable, those who are vulnerable to abuse and harassment in evacuation centres are LGBTIQ, people with disabilities, women and children. And so for Pacific um, people where there are challenges in terms of attitudes to LGBTIQ, that had to be in there. Because otherwise, if, they, if that connection wasn't made, then basically um, the abuse can continue. And so we actually want to say is, nah, everyone's welcome. And if you are the church, because the church in the Pacific are usually the first responders on the ground, and they are the place that people look to for protection and safety. So if we as a church are providing hospitality and looking after the vulnerable in our society during a time of disaster, then, you know, we better make sure that we're protecting everybody, regardless of our theological um, sort of uh, standing or position. And again, this, was, this is one of the challenges again because people then go into doctrine. Ah, no, the Bible says this. And, you know, it's like, yes, but when it comes to practice, what is our responsibility? So inclusion becomes really important. The other is that preparedness is discipleship in action. So it's saying not only do you have to pray, folks, James says that if you pray and, you know, prayer without action is dead, so you've got to pray, you've got to do. So it's, and these are just simple links. Um, so uh, informed disaster preparation, it's as simple as that. Be informed, uh, have a kit ready, all that kind of stuff. The fourth is Pacifica knowledge and wisdom. And again, this is about um, encouraging people and saying, you know, it is okay to go back to what we know because what we know is good, right? Um, it's always been there. And uh, the practice is to integrate the Pacifica cultural understanding and practices into disaster um, risk that should be risk management whenever possible. 
reduction management. Yeah, that could work. Um, all right, and the fifth one is prophetic voice. Um, and uh, here is about linking back into the broader climate change issue. Um, and that is to say that we can't just deal with this aspect, which is disaster preparedness. We also have to look at the bigger picture because they're, in, they're related. And that brings in, um, it brings into the picture climate injustice or climate justice and that disaster resilience and climate justice are interrelated. So it's again reminding the church of their prophetic role in the public space that they have to speak up um, because you can't just address the symptom without looking at the broader um, sort of problem. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of um, uh, on-the-ground resilience kind of way uh, of helping people build their resilience, both in, um, you know, in a, a kind of physical but also in a spiritual way and a cultural way of actually connecting all these three together. And so finally, to finish, um, so that I can wake you up again if you have fallen asleep, but you haven't, right? Um, I just want to play it. You may have seen this, maybe. Uh, it's, um, again, goes back to the message of resilience, and it comes from an organisation called 350.org and uh, Specific Climate Warriors. So they'll probably be in the climate march tomorrow. Yeah. So this is, we are not... that our journey here um, as you know Pacific Climate Warriors is a peaceful journey. We bring with us you know our culture, our tradition, we bring with us our people you know? and we travel to Newcastle to highlight these impacts of climate change to share our stories with the rest of the world and hopefully uh, get Australia to reconsider uh, the commitment to expanding the fossil fuel industry because if they continue to expand the industry, it will continue to uh, expand the destruction to the Pacific. We try to come up with something which is really unique in our tradition and, and which reflects uh, how important our culture is and how um, uh, badly, I mean, this climate change affects our, our culture. Building this traditional canoe will really show the voices of the people 
uh, in our in our in our place uh, the indigenous people who lives back home who are struggling from uh, these challenges of climate change uh, so uh, we 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 take the canoe as a, as a tool and as a mechanism uh, that reflects our culture, that reflects our tradition, to show the world that uh, we are at the front line of climate change and we are facing uh, this challenge in our daily activities uh, uh, in, in back home. Uh, climate change is, is real. Climate change is impacting our livelihood, our food security, our environments. Then it's important for us to tell that story and in the hope that it will change people's mind of the way they are treating the environment. Us going to, um, to the flotilla in Newcastle is taking that message that, that we want a solution. We, we, want, we want the world um, to be responsible and, and do something about climate change. I chose to go to Australia, to, to Newcastle, because climate change is uh, a personal issue for me. Living on low-lying atolls has been a re lived reality for all of our people, for the Marshall Islands, and I felt it was really important that I join into bring that story out so people are aware of it and they can help us, so they can also help us do something about it. It's important for us as uh, young people in the Pacific to share our stories, to share our lives, to share our history and our culture and our traditions because this is, this is who we are. This is what makes us the people of the Pacific. In Newcastle, that's what we did. We brought our stories and so many people connected with us. And it just moves people. Stories move people and connect us to one another at a deeper level. And I think that's what was so powerful about our action in Newcastle. We did it in a very specific way, in our own way, and it, it really motivated and touched so many people. It's so important that you know, as young people, we stand together and we stand united. And we're, we're ready to share this message with our people and with the rest of the world. We are here as warriors to uh, tell the world that we are not drowning, we are fighting. Thank you, uh, Seth. Uh, we'll open it up straight for question time. Someone, we've got the mic here. Anyone have a question? I'm quite intrigued. It's kind of a side issue. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of all the same. But um, I'm quite intrigued by you talking about um, that kind of reintegration of theology and kind of um, Indigenous knowledge. Um, and I guess you talked about some examples of how that happens, but how, um, how, how has that kind of played out in terms of how, how have you 
tried to encourage communities to actually reintegrate that knowledge? Like, is that from the pulpit, as you say, or is it kind of an educational thing in the school? Like, how does that actually, um, how has that actually come about in a positive way? Because I, I can understand that would be quite a difficult yep. kind of relearning of yep. and, and kind of letting go of things that have been quite systemic for the last kind of 200, 300 years. So how is that? Yeah. I mean, two ways. Uh, mainly it's through education to begin with. Um, but the, it, what we find is that outside the church, it's an easier integration in terms of um, encouraging people to see culture as, um, as a valid source of, of living everyday life. Um, so it happens, on the one hand, it happens as a separate thing aside from theology, and that usually happens in educational institutions. Um, so for example, um, the University of the South Pacific campus in Tuvalu is actually already on a journey of um, integrating or bringing back, reclaiming Indigenous knowledge as part of education. So they're beginning with the little is um, taking it all the way up because it's about changing a generation, a generation, you know, in terms of thinking. So, uh, but the other part is um, is the church part, and that's the harder part. So, um, this is the beginning of that journey of actually bringing together uh, leaders because they are the ones who are the uh, big influential people in the community. It's about changing their concepts of how they view their culture and Indigenous knowledge. So this is quite a new journey um, in the church theological setting. Um, yeah, it has happened. I mean, before you've had Pacific writers or Pacific theologians writing about um, about land, writing about um, the Moana. So that work is around. It just hasn't filtered all the way down to the very local level, and that's where we want it to go. I, I thought that was really exciting. You know, I, I, I was, and, and congratulations on grappling with this challenge. I was conscious that when you discussed a theology of preparedness, mm. that in this community, which some would say is virtually totally godless, we have bushfire preparedness worked out. If you are a property owner in a bushfire prone community, mm. and you said, I'm doing nothing because God will take care of me, you'd either be regarded as likely insane or criminally yeah. negligent or both. Yeah. And Many people would aspire, would think, many Christians, possibly including me, would say, wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a community where everyone, where 90% of people affirmed Christian values? And yet the very challenge that you've presented, so far as I, I can see, so, and I'm not missing the point of the mm -hmm. real challenge of the risk to your livelihood in your nations, yeah. but in terms of theology, it seems to me you have an opportunity to explore this, this tension between faithful reliance on God's mercy, grace, whatever, on the one hand, and actively engaging reality, for want of a better term, on the other. And it seems to me there's almost, dare I say it, an opportunity mm. 
to work out a theology of in, an intelligent theology that grapples with these, this tension because it's a, that tension is applicable not just to your community but to Christians throughout the world. And there, there is the opportunity, seems to me, I don't want to say a no, disaster is wonderful, <laughs> I'm not trying to tell you that. Yeah. I am trying to tell you that it seems to me there's opportunity for you to take a Christian leadership, you and your community, to take a Christian leadership position on working out some things that have troubled human beings for centuries and to take them one step further in, in this modern world. Yeah. I hope, I hope yeah. some of that makes sense. Oh, it does. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my understanding of uh, Pacific demographics has it that... Uh, uh, that while the while the population is highly Christian, it is also highly fragmented in uh, denominational terms. So, uh, uh, so how do the uh, how do the churches in uh, uh, in Pacific countries uh, uh, work e work to uh, uh, assist each other in an economic ecumenical context? Um, yeah. So this uh, this particular work uh, and also the gender work is actually done ecumenically. So um, for this work, we've, um, yeah, it's part of the Church Agency Network Disaster Operation, uh, which is um, a DFAT-funded uh, sort of umbrella, or partly a DFAT-funded. And so um, it is both ecumenical in Australia as well as in the Pacific. So when we came together, um, practitioners and theologians, we ensured that the different denominations were included. So, and when the theology was written, it went out to the different leaders in different countries to have a look, because what was so important is that we needed them to buy in. Because we know that if, if, they, if one denomination does not like what's in the theology, then it can stop. Um, so, um, yeah, so, and I think that consultation, that's what I was saying, this community kind of uh, way of doing theology is really working because it, I think there's the feeling that everyone's voice and perspective is included. And so if we have disagreement, it's done at the, you know, the writing and also conversational stage so we don't have issues at the end. Um, yeah, so both with this, the disaster uh, resilience and also with the gender equality theology was a ecumenical um, initiative. Uh, thanks, Seth. Loved it. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm trying to form the question, so hopefully it makes sense. Um, in Australia, uh, trying to help people uh, through maybe a theological shift is hard enough. Yeah. Uh, so the theology might be true but not necessarily persuasive uh, and so I guess what has uh, some of the struggles been in those conversations on the ground level uh, for people to I guess not just yeah push it back but then to yeah take it on and think through it as well um, there have there been ways that it's worked uh, or some um, have there has stuff come up that's made it harder uh, that yeah I guess uh, people's stubbornness or something like that, yeah, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, both in the gender equality, I don't like using them because, yeah, anyway, but the, in the gender equality theology space and also in this space, 
Um, yeah, there are difficult conversations and also difficult questions that come up. Um, so um, just trying to think of one. Uh, when we did this in Vanuatu, yeah, and working on inclusion and actually the and having the conversation around um, the safety of all people, including LGBTIQ, that was a difficult conversation. So um, what I found is uh, it's is enabling or creating the space for people to voice whatever it is, the fear, the the doubt, um, and then actually just working through it in a in a um, in, an, in a kind of honest, open manner. So I remember when we had the conversation about the LGBTIQ, um, uh, that was a tough afternoon, and we spent about half an hour to an hour just solely talking about LGBTIQ. Uh, and that, and the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be the focus of the conversation, but it was really an issue that they had with the theology. Um, so even though their head was saying, yeah, we should include all people, uh, but actually there are some people we don't want to include, <laughs> you know, so getting them to actually name it and talking it through and then um, sort of uh, linking it. And what we did with this also is that it was accompanied by five Bible studies uh, and one of them uh, was on the parable of the great banquet and actually using the parable to talk through inclusion. Um, and so questions around, well, is it really our place to decide who gets to sit at the table? Um, and so when they, and that was, that was again a transforming moment because when they started to look through, well, read through the parable and engage with it, they began to see that it is a responsibility to care for all people irrespective of where you are on the spectrum of your theology, um, because that's, you know, that's, that's what we call to do, and perhaps that's costly discipleship to actually say, you know what, I'm going to have to suspend whatever it is I feel or think, um, because at this particular time I have to be Christ-like. That's what's asked of me. Um, so the Bible studies, because Pacific Islanders love their Bible, <laughs> they just love it, you know. So, uh, we, and yeah, so using um, particular texts to actually help them through that. Um, and I found with this, uh, yeah, on this conversation, there was one or two people, or there were one or two people in the group that were very strong, you know. And so it was like, well, you're rewriting the narrative, you know. It's like, okay, we'll leave it there. But the next day, they actually, I don't know. I mean, all I can say it's spirit that if you approach it in a manner and create a space that enables people to voice their fear or whatever it is that they're feeling um, and just allow them to take the journey, changes do happen. And with this uh, particular person, he was very adamant on the first day, no, 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 that's not the way. And to the next day, he was saying, you know what, yep, um, I do have a responsibility to care for all people. So those are the kind of changes that happen and they come through conversation. Pacific context, talanoi is the word that we use, um, which is conversation. Talking through stuff is really important. Um, that's, that seems to be the way where things, where change can happen. Um, yeah, so, yeah. But, I mean, one of the biggest ways that we found was addressing it through biblical texts.
I was saying to Brooke before that reflecting on some of my conversations with my Pacific friends um, mm. around this kind of forced exile and yep. the loss of land and all that that means um, and the fear of loss of culture, loss of connection with ancestors, you know, that whole scary bundle um, and and them trying to think through how they prepare for that. The church in the Pacific trying to think through how they pastorally care for people in that situation. Um, I was thinking, you know, uh, the, the people who can tell us most about what that experience is like is our Australian Aboriginal yeah. brothers and sisters because they had their land taken away mm. and were kept off it in that f kind of forced exile. So, um, yeah, there's, there's so much there perhaps that we, we could learn. Yeah. Um, and um, if they're gracious enough to be willing to help us with that. Um, I was just wondering if you're aware of any work that's being done at the moment to connect those kind of two groups of people so that that learning can happen. Yeah. There's been conversation around how those um, two stories can connect uh, and sustain, nurture, help each other on the journey, but there actually hasn't been, I don't think, uh, an actual conversation or a bringing together of um, Aboriginal and Pacific people together in the same space to actually see how that can work. So um, I know it's been something that, like the idea has been suggested and a number of Aboriginal people have said to me, well, you know, this is, this is a way that we Aboriginals and Pacific people can connect. Um, so we've talked about it, but we haven't actually made the step of bringing the two groups together. Um, but yep, absolutely, yeah. I, I think that that's, um, that's where, that's you know, an opportunity for great learning and insight um, and helping each other through the journey. Um, I have one last question. Um, and probably just to add to that, I think we need to keep in mind as I was sitting there listening the depth of the colonial project that is still in existence today. And so the dominant cultures will try to keep us apart. And when 58% of Aboriginal people in these lands live in poverty, and we think about many in the Pacific Islands, uh, without the same resources to be able for us to come together, it's relying on the dominant culture. So I think that's a fascinating thing to think through. Um, uh, and our need, but God will bring us together. I truly believe that. <laughs> um, but we will take we action, not just happen. prayer, action. Um, Seth, my last question was, uh, I heard you speak at the Surrender Conference in March in Melbourne this year. And one of the things you really highlighted or opened my eyes to uh, was we use this term, the Pacific, uh, but it's obviously a number of islands and a number of nations. And, uh, you know, when I talk about Aboriginal uh, peoples in Australia and I talk about these lands now called Australia, uh, to try and 
come back into the individual, not the collective, to yeah. realise the scale. So I'm just wondering if you have a comment on, you know, this collective term, the Pacific, and how that might be how we could reclaim the individual identities of the nations and islands and how important that might be in terms of thinking about the impacts of climate change. Yeah. Um, generally, well, uh, in, I think, the late 90s, there was, a, there was a shift in terms of the term uh, from Pacific people saying that um, Pacific is a colonised kind of name. It's a name, you know, that colonisers use to describe smallness, lack of dreams, independence, blah, blah, blah. So th uh, the preferred term uh, was Oceania because we are the ocean. Um, you know, we are the biggest ocean. We are majority water. And so we are connected by the ocean. So the sea is what connects us. So the sea connects the land, the sea connects people, and the sea, um, you know, um, not only connects, but also um, highlights our distinctiveness as well. So Oceania really is the preferred term. I just kind of get lazy every now and then and use Pacific. Um, so yeah, so this sense of we are the ocean. And then uh, there was a, a theological thinking developed along the lines of Moana. Moana, not the Disney Moana. You know, I can't believe it. Someone actually said to me, are you referring to Disney? Like, and I was like, no, Moana is the ocean. You know, that's, yeah, anyway. So yeah, so not that Moana. Um, Moana, the ocean, which, you know, yeah, kind of, if you use the term, we know exactly what that is. Um, you know how language actually can, um, has a different way of, of connecting and, and a different kind of impact um, to the people that it reflects. So, um, so the ocean is one of those. But in terms of um, with, the, uh, with, with Oceania, now I'm going to be very conscious, um, we are, there's a sense that we are one and yet we are distinct in our own different ways, um, and there's a there's a sense I think in the in in the Pacific of actually knowing that without actually having to um, you know think about it you know to be conscious about it because it's something that's in the in our DNA you kind of know we're the same and yet we're we're different, and so when um, when issues are being uh, talked about or brought to the fore there is a sense of collectiveness as well as a sense of also ensuring that the, the individual kind of island nations actually have their own particular issues and challenges voiced as well. I know that through the Pacific Conference of Churches, um, there is a intentional kind of um, sort of working or outworking in terms of how the different um, churches in the different islands relate to one another that actually reflects their own particular issues and challenges so that they all don't get subsumed into one. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of, it's really hard to say because I think in, the, in many ways we are one and yet we are distinctive and we understand that. Um, the, the bigger world may not, but we do, and there's a sense of that's all that matters. It shouldn't be, but that's kind of how the, yeah. Does that answer your question? Uh, 
we'll say thank you to you, uh, Seth. So uh, just thank you so much for being here with us here at Paddington Anglican at Peace Talks. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, your uh, insights, your wisdom, um, your uh, passion and uh, your knowledge and uh, sharing the stories of uh, many friends, uh, our neighbours across the Pacific or Oceania um, and sharing the resilience. Uh, and so uh, we're very grateful that you've been here tonight with us. I wanted to... Uh, uh, we've interacted in many different conferences together and, uh, you know, as you head to Geneva, I wanted to give you a special uh, blessing. Um, it's one I could have given to someone yesterday, uh, but I didn't want to because I reserve it for, for oh, special people. <laughs> um, and it's not in my words, um, but I just thank you for, as you head uh, to another land, um, thank you for walking so softly and gently on these lands now called Australia um, and for your friendship with Aboriginal Christian leaders uh, and with many other people in these lands now called Australia. And so this is the blessing in the words of Auntie Betty Pike. Um, so may you always stand as tall as a tree, be as strong as the rock Uluru, as gentle and still as the morning mist, hold the warmth of the campfire in your heart. And may create a spirit always walk with you and walk with us. Amen. Amen. And thank you. Thank you. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so thank you all for coming tonight. We'll go and have our supper. Please put uh, in your phones our next Peace Talks, which is Saturday the 2nd of November. Um, so Peace Talks happens on either a Thursday or Saturday any time during the month. Uh, and the 2nd of November, uh, we've got the ins and outs of the body of Christ, listening to the voices the church needs to hear. And we'll have uh, Steph Fenton, who's part of our Peace Talks team, Dr. Shane Clifton um, and Joanne Shan. And uh, it'd be lovely to have you back, Steph. <laughs> um, maybe you should be asking questions. You can send one through. Uh, and then also on Saturday the 30th of November is our December Peace Talks, but on the last Saturday in November, um, which is from Bethlehem with Love, Advent Reflections in Conversation with Palestinian Christian Theology with Reverend Catherine Ranger, um, soon to be Dr. Reverend Dr. Catherine Ranger. So Saturday the 2nd and Saturday the 30th, please invite your friends um, and come along to our two final peace talks uh, for the year. But thank you all for being here tonight and uh, let's uh, share in supper together. <laughs>